This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What you're talking about really is the fact that natural disasters are not natural. And lack of uh, governance or even bad governance are a very important uh, factor besides, for instance, uh, poverty, marginalization, why uh, people uh, are uh, displaced. Hi, this is Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. This is the show to listen to if you're interested in the global refugee crisis and how we tackle it as humanitarians. We are from the International Rescue Committee, and on our day job, we try to design, test, and scale life-changing solutions. You are listening to our mini-series on how climate change is shaping displacement. And today we're talking with Walter Kalin, who you heard from at the top, and is currently the envoy of the chair of the Platform on Disaster Displacement, and is also a professor emeritus for international and Swiss constitutional law. He's previously served as the United Nations representative on human rights for internally displaced people, and really been thinking about this issue for a long time. Before we get into the interview, we'd love to hear from you about what struck you in the conversations we've had so far this season, whether that's about climate change or refugee resettlement or the future of war. But nothing else. We don't want to hear from you on anything else. No, nothing else. But you can you can get in touch with us. Tell us on Twitter. I'm at Argo Murphy and he's at... I am at Grant M. Gordon. <laughs> you should remember that by now. Walter has been at the forefront of a lot of the intergovernmental processes that have identified the solutions for migration generated by climate change. And as you'll see in the conversation, we discuss how some of the normative frameworks, how some of these legal frameworks that define the norms and the rights and the responsibilities of states to their populations have actually been generating solutions or have been detached from solutions. And we get into an interesting debate on, you know, whether we've actually been focusing on the right thing at the intergovernmental level um, as we really try to address the urgency of this issue. And that's a good interview to understand what are the practical steps that nations have been taking over the last decade to try and uh, reach some agreement on how to address displacement as a result of climate change? And it's not been one process to get all the countries through some UN intergovernmental process. It's been much, much more bottom-up, more sub-regional. Um, and, and Walter will explain the latest in terms of how he's making progress there. We're going to be diving into the solutions today on climate change. You're part of a series of episodes on climate change and its effects on displacement. And we've heard a lot about the legal challenges and the uh, the scale of the issue. But we want to talk about what states can do and what they can do together. And before we dive into the solutions, I'd love to just hear a bit more about your own personal involvement in this issue and how you got to be so involved. Well, uh, I think it goes back uh, to the time when I... Uh was the um, representative of the UN Secretary General on internally displaced uh, persons. I came into office um, in uh, 2004, in November. And, of course, the day after Christmas um, of that year, we had uh, the uh, tsunami disaster in the Indian Ocean. And uh, this uh, led me to think about how should we address protection needs of people who are displaced uh, not by armed conflict, but uh, by um, 
disasters, environmental disasters. Of course, this was not climate-related, but um, this was kind of the entry point. Craig, can, can you tell us a little bit about the um, the mandate and the core work that the Nansen Initiative and then the um, successor platform have really been taking on? When we started out, uh, one of the big problems was that there was absolutely no consensus on whether we're talking about something that is cropping up in the future, in 10, 20, 30 years, or at the end of the century, or whether it's already something that is a reality today. Uh, Second, uh, at that time, the focus was very much on notions of climate refugees and uh, some NGOs, uh, some of the academics were pushing for amending the Convention on the Status of Refugees, the 1951 Convention, to create the status of climate uh, refugees. What we found out during our uh, consultations, and we started with a consultation in the Pacific, and already there we heard what we heard consistently afterwards, it's not so much an issue of a refugee status. First, uh, wherever we went, we heard when people have to flee in the context of uh, sudden onset um, events, weather related or geophysical events, the reason why people have uh, to uh, flee is very often multi-causal. It's not just a hazard. We heard about the difficulties of attributing a specific weather event to global warming. But then we were also told, and I still remember that very vividly at our uh, consultation in uh, Rarotonga in the South Pacific, uh, the leader of a small NGO grassroots organization from Kiribati uh, very emotionally said, we don't want to become refugees. And she highlighted, we see these refugees on TV sitting in their refugee camps run by UNHCR. We don't want to end up like that. But then she also said, we know that one day we have to move. But what we want is some measure of decision, some measure of voluntariness, when to go and where to go. And this at that time was also uh, the approach taken by the government of Kiribati to uh, promote migration with dignity. Out of those conversations and the other consultations we had in the Horn of Africa, Central America, etc., came really this idea of a toolbox approach. What we need is first helping people to stay. That's very much about climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction. We need to help people to move out of harm's way. That's about planned relocation. That's about opening up migration pathways. And then we need to protect those who are actually displaced. And what the Nansen Initiative and its successor, the um, Platform on Disaster Displacement, really were doing and what we are still doing is framing these messages and feeding them into international uh, policy processes. So you outlined three types of response. Well, firstly, trying to prepare before the displacement occurs. Secondly, trying to do protection and assistance during displacement. And then thirdly, what happens in the aftermath of the disaster. And it'd be good to be able to dig into each of those. If you take the first element, preparedness, and you mentioned things like adaptation and disaster risk reduction, is the work you are doing trying to essentially compile what we know about what works 
and, and make that knowledge available to others? Or is it trying to get much greater commitments and investment into things like adapt- adaptation? It's uh, actually both. Um, the Nansen Initiative culminated in uh, the adoption and endorsement by more than 100 states of what we call the Nansen Initiative Protection Agenda. And it contains a a long list of effective practices. But what is really important for us is to uh, have uh, these effective practices reflected in international policy documents and international policy processes. So in 2005, we developed messages uh, in the run-up to the Sendai conference on um, action plan and framework on disaster risk reduction for 2015-2030. We uh, prepared uh, very clear messages in the sense of saying traditionally disaster risk reduction has been uh, looking very much at technical aspects of reducing disaster risks um, to simplify Uh, building um, dams and dikes, uh, stronger uh, roofs and uh, thicker walls. And what he said is, you really have to integrate displacement risks into disaster risk uh, reduction uh, measures. You should, for instance, as an effective practice, go out when you as a country are revising your disaster risk uh, reduction strategies, identify areas that are at a particular risk of uh, people uh, being displaced. You uh, should start uh, to look at cross-border movements that could uh, happen. And um, in terms of preparedness, of contingency planning, uh, start to cooperate across uh, borders, these kind of things. It was really an uphill battle during the negotiations uh, in Sendai because um, many countries didn't want uh, to integrate displacement, uh, human mobility, uh, migrants, etc. into uh, that document. They felt, well, that's another process. That's really where we're talking about humanitarian issues, about uh, migration and displacement issues. It has nothing to do with uh, disaster risk reduction. But there were uh, other states, and I think we played there an important role in mobilizing these states, who um, were insisting that it is important to integrate um, disaster risk, uh, to integrate human mobility into disaster risk uh, reduction. And in the end, uh, we got uh, quite good language, lots of hooks in that text. So one of the really interesting things that hits me in the debate around preparedness is the divergence between a focus on what's really kind of infrastructural issues, um, housing regulations, dams, all the activities that you were talking about, as well as kind of um, a knowledge or acceptance that it's really about weak governance and state institutions that um, don't have the ability to respond, that don't have the ability to oversee dispute resolutions, that just don't have capacity to kind of absorb and um, and adapt that is the other major preparedness issue that everybody kind of acknowledges is, a f- is, is fundamental to thinking about climate change, but that never really works its way into some of the content on preparedness. And I would love to get your reflections on that divergence. What you're talking about really is the fact that natural disasters are not natural, that uh, human factors uh, play such an important role and lack of uh, governance or even bad governance are a very important uh, factor besides, um, for instance, uh, poverty, marginalization, why uh, people uh, are uh, displaced. You're right, and I fully agree that um, this is an aspect uh, that um, is... um, 
to a large extent lacking in the discussions. However, if you're looking, for instance, at the Global uh, Compact uh, on Migration and the chapter on addressing um, causes of migration, then uh, we do have some elements uh, that uh, would be helpful to have a stronger focus on um, governance-related uh, uh, aspects. I think what's also helpful uh, is to link uh, the discussion that we are having here with uh, the discussion on the Sustainable Development Goals because uh, the Sustainable Development Goals very much um, are built on the assumption you have states that are able to uh, protect and advance their uh, own uh, populations. Also, uh, talking about um, climate change adaptation, this is not just about, for instance, bringing in drought-resistant crops, but it's again about uh, building uh, the uh, resilience uh, of uh, people. But just to push on, on Grant's question, it feels like some of the most vulnerable countries, places like South Sudan and Yemen, uh, barely have the ability to be able to en enable basic health services or education services to function now. It feels like disaster risk reduction and adaptation is a is a is something far beyond their capacity to do right now or in the foreseeable future. So to what extent do you look at the different states and their levels of fragility and think, is, are the frameworks that you're developing appropriate for their uh, capacity? What I find is promising, and I'm not really a specialist on these issues, um, we are very much focusing on those who are actually moving even across borders and not so much on uh, the prevention aspect. But um, we know that local communities can go a long way in taking measures, helping to build their resilience, reducing uh, disaster uh, risks. Um, I, um, for instance, came across um, uh, situations in Somalia where we not only have droughts, we also have recurrent uh, floods, where uh, interventions uh, to help communities with local means to better uh, manage um, water and water flows have substantially reduced um, displacement numbers. So that's one aspect that is possible. But our key message is we really need a toolbox we need to use all the tools that are available to help people to stay, to help people to move out of harm's way and to protect those who are displaced. And what tools are appropriate in a specific situation very much depends on the context. We're going to take a quick break now. and We'll be back soon with Walter Kalin. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You are listening to Displaced and we're talking to Walter Kalin. So let's move on to actual displacement and the tools that you identify. Can you talk through uh, what those are? Of course, uh, there are um, effective means to protect those who are internally displaced, like the incorporation of uh, the guiding principles of an, on internal displacement into domestic laws and policies, or in Africa, to uh, implement at the domestic level the Kampala Convention on Internal Displacement, which has a specific article on uh, climate change-related uh, displacement. 
It's then also very much about an adequate humanitarian response uh, to those uh, who uh, are displaced. And then very, very importantly, to find um, solutions for these people who have been displaced. For audience members who may be unfamiliar with the the Kampala Convention in particular, um, can you um, explain what that was and what was kind of innovative and important about it, um, and then how it's kind of affecting some of the places that you're chatting about? The Kampala Convention was uh, adopted by the African Union in 2009. Uh, The um, point of departure was the realization by African countries uh, that um, Africa really was at that time the continent of internal displacement and that they had to do something about it. We already at that time had um, an international instrument, the so-called Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement, which set out the rights of uh, IDPs, of internally displaced uh, people. But uh, the challenge in Africa, from the perspective of the African Union, was, yes, rights, that's fine, but what we really need is governments to assume their responsibilities. So the Kampala Convention sets out the responsibilities of African governments uh, to prevent Uh, internal displacement to protect and assist those who are displaced and to find solutions ending uh, internal displacement. And it not only covers uh, displacement in the context of armed conflict, but also uh, displacement um, in the context of uh, disasters and uh, adverse effects of climate change. It seems like there's been uh, a number of kind of increasingly refined normative frameworks that have been coming together to, you know, provide a set of principles, to provide a set of rights, to outline responsibilities for um, governments as they as they think about climate change um, and how it's shaping migration. Below that, though, you were then also saying that solutions actually remain some of the areas that are weakest. And it, it may, and I guess one perspective is, I think it's easy to focus on frameworks when there are no solutions. Um, but isn't there, given kind of the intensity and urgency of the issue, uh, a need to refocus more energies and financing on kind of concrete solutions at this point? Yes, certainly. And uh, I think that's one of the um, really unsolved problems and and big challenges. Uh, All of that requires a lot of money. And do we have the financing? We um, spend internationally, as the international community, a lot of money on humanitarian assistance. Mm -hmm. That's usually short-term assistance. No, not short-term assistance, short-term financing. And then the next year, you have to come back in the and long term. <laughs> um, have have the same needs for money to feed people, uh, to provide them with water, with health services. And then the one year funding runs out again and the next year it's the same thing. I um, visited uh, Somalia to stay with this example and I think it's a good example to illustrate uh, the challenges uh, back uh, in uh, 2015, traveling through the country and asking uh, local communities, local leaders, but also authorities what they thought about uh, the international response. And wherever I went, it was the same answer. You have been spending so much money on life-saving, short-term humanitarian assistance for 20 years, and people have not been able to really move ahead. Uh, You really have to switch uh, to different approaches, meaning very much development approaches. And what do you mean by that? What, what kind of what kind of approaches are you talking about? Uh, when we're talking about development approaches, it's 
For instance, people who uh, are depending on humanitarian handouts, and they are necessary, I'm not going to criticize humanitarian action, quite to the contrary, but who in these urban areas don't have access uh, to um, livelihoods, if uh, they are sitting uh, in irregular settlements and they are evicted time and again, and whenever they are evicted, they lose the little access they had to jobs as uh, daily workers, the little access they had to some of the local uh, health or education services, then they are really unable to rebuild their lives. So investing into um, finding solutions, providing them uh, with livelihood opportunities, with a place where they can stay, with some measure of uh, security of tenure, so that they cannot be kicked out at any time, would go a long way in helping uh, people to rebuild their lives and, and become self-sufficient again. Now, if you're looking at a, a city like uh, Baidoa in Somalia, its population has uh, doubled in 2017 because of the new arrivals of people uh, displaced by uh, drought and the uh, insecurity. And just imagine uh, the place where you're living doubling in population within uh, a few months. That's a huge challenge. It requires really to expand local services, education, bringing infrastructure, water, and that's very much a city or town planning approach, an urban planning approach. So you have to link humanitarian action with these um, more longer-term uh, perspectives uh, to um, help the urban areas, and it's mainly urban areas, where uh, people displaced by um, adverse effects of climate change go to, to help these urban areas to, to absorb these populations and uh, to uh, integrate them into their health education services, but also into uh, the labor markets. It's really interesting. I, I, um, the conversation that you're pulling on there on kind of humanitarian financing versus development financing, um, oftentimes is is one that I think is very challenging. But um, I, I tend to think that there's a difference in expectations over the time horizons. Uh, well, absolutely getting livelihoods for people in Somalia is the kind of optimal goal. The challenge to changing the structural features of that economy to actually generate the type of jobs and opportunities for people is, you know, such a long-term process um, that I think it then generates an equilibrium where you're functionally focusing on short-term humanitarian aid over and over again. And it seems to me like that may be kind of one of the challenges or one of the pieces that's that's happening in in climate change, too. But it gets it gets back to this kind of like how are we generating the long term solutions? And one thing that I would love to hear about is how the the platform and you know previously the Nansen initiative was actually structuring processes to generate the solutions um, for um, for these issues. Okay, um, actually the Nansen initiative and the platform on disaster displacement are not very much focusing on internal displacement. Um, so what our main focus uh, is, is really cross-border displacement. And you were before uh, talking about, yes, we have normative frameworks, which is true when it's uh, about internal displacement, but um, we do have the huge normative gaps uh, when people are displaced across borders because they are not recognized as refugees as defined in international law. Uh, the reason being that they are not persecuted and at the core of each and every uh, definition of uh, refugees um, lies this notion of um, 
either the government or non-governmental um, actors that are actually um, exercising power over a territory are turning against you and that's why you have to flee. And we don't have that when we're talking about uh, climate change, uh, disaster displacement. Uh, their um, governments of countries concerned are really not turning against their own uh, population. And that's why we have this normative gap. And um, we uh, have been uh, trying to, and I think with some success, we have been trying to identify effective practices, good practices on how to protect those who are fleeing across international borders, despite uh, the absence of uh, international law that would uh, protect uh, them. And what we found is... And, and just, just, on, just, yep. just, just, just on that, I mean, do you think actually it's the right way to go is to not stop debating the the, the framework and, and how you define um, who is in need, but actually start doing things and almost emergently f- find from that a sort of consensus? Yes, very much so. Um, the Nansen Initiative consultations were focusing on effective practices and then to see how these uh, practices um, kind of could become more predictable, more, more harmonized. I'll give you an example. Uh, what we found, for instance, is uh, that in um, the Americas, uh, Central America, South America, but to some extent also in the US and Canada, Governments in the past have been ready to either grant humanitarian visa to people displaced across borders or to provide them with uh, temporary protection status. In the case of the US, it's not about admission, it's about non-deportation of people who are already in the US. But again, it's temporary protection uh, status. What we have started to do on the basis of this analysis is going deeper. We uh, have analyzed uh, what are the legal uh, provisions in Central America, in South America, what are the practices. We have been bringing uh, governments together. And uh, the outcome in Central America is a guide to effective practices uh, to uh, admit and protect cross-border disaster displaced persons. And uh, in uh, South America, Uh, Governments uh, just have adopted a kind of guidelines on the same issue. Uh, We'll see uh, how far we will get there, but uh, it's a very, very promising beginning. And it's really interesting if you take together migration authorities, but also disaster management authorities, uh, start to discuss on what's uh, happening and then translate that uh, into uh, guidance with a few to, as I said, harmonize practices uh, that uh, states have been used in the past, but very often a bit haphazardly, not in a systematic way. Also how to harmonize uh, standards at a regional or sub-regional level, and uh, then uh, start to implement that. In terms of implementation, uh, we have been uh, supporting um, a simulation exercise between uh, Costa Rica and Panama regarding a disaster happening in uh, that zone. That's a normal thing that you're doing uh, simulations uh, if you're a disaster management authority. But for the first time, part of the simulation was to involve the migration authorities. So the director of migration uh, got the call in the middle of the night. We have uh, so many uh, families at the border, should we let them in or not? 
uh, also training on these uh, guides uh, that were developed um, with uh, authorities, with migration authorities. That's the kind of very practical things that can be done to um, have uh, some progress in a situation where we still don't have the overarching um, international framework. These discussions that are going on and about the, the global compact, for instance, and other negotiations, to what extent is it possible to factor in the voices of affected communities? Because given the scale of the effects here, it feels it feels strange to be talking about large numbers of people without their voice being part of this conversation. I think we have to uh, distinguish between uh, different um, types of, of countries. Um, if you're looking at um, the... Uh, South, uh, the Pacific Island states, I think um, there, um, with the small populations, um, you don't have a big gap between uh, communities and, and, and the governments. And the governments um, uh, very often, not always, but very often do express what uh, the communities uh, feel. In uh, other countries, it might be different. You, again, have uh, countries uh, that uh, are pushing um, the message of we need to protect these uh, people at uh, all the different uh, global uh, processes and um, reflect to some extent um, the local communities. But then there are the governments uh, that uh, are not uh, doing this. Uh, the fact is um, this international system is still built on the notion of uh, sovereign states, of um, intergovernmental processes, and it's very difficult to gain access for communities uh, to these uh, discussions. I think that's where uh, civil society really has uh, a huge role to play because civil society has access uh, to these uh, processes one way or another and where civil society has to take up uh, the um, voice of communities. But when it comes to really understanding and conceptualizing, yes, then it's not the um, nice uh, rooms at the Palais des Nations in uh, Geneva. Then you have to go out. Then you have to talk uh, to uh, the local communities. Then you have to talk to the grassroots uh, organizations. And in our work, we uh, always combine the intergovernmental um, consultations with um, civil society uh, consultations at um, sub-regional levels. And just one final question. When we talk about climate change mitigation, we're used to talking about the gap between uh, what is necessary and what is being done in terms of international agreements and emissions reductions. It feels like uh, in terms of displacement, there's again a huge mismatch between the scale of the potential problem and the very early initiatives that you have been pioneering. How how far off where we need to be in terms of thinking about and acting on some of the issues that you've been talking about are we? I think what we have is the knowledge, not all the detailed statistics, but the overall knowledge, what's happening, what the challenges are. We know what the tools are. We have identified effective uh, practices. So it's not like we are totally helpless. But what we really need is uh, the political will. Uh, the political will um, at each and every level, bottom up, regional, uh, international. And what I feel is uh, that um, one of the challenges we are facing is this is a complex world, it's a difficult world, there are so many challenges, so many problems. And in a way, climate change for most people and for most politicians is still too far away. And we have a bit of tendency of saying, yeah, it's all right and okay, 
but short term is more important. Let's wait. Let's continue uh, with uh, sometimes endless uh, discussions on what to do. And that's where I really uh, am concerned about. At the same time, I'm happy that um, the platform on disaster displacement, which is composed of a group of states, that we do have some governments who think uh, more long term and who are continuing to push these messages. Walter Kalin, thank you so much for being with us on Displaced today. Thank you. That was Walter Kalin, envoy of the chair of the Platform on Disaster Displacement and a professor emeritus for international and Swiss constitutional law. If you want to hear more on any of the topics we discussed today or the broader series on climate change, check out our show notes at www.rescue.org displaced. Remember to tweet at us. I'm at Grant M. Gordon. Ravi's at rguramurthy. We'd love to hear from you. We want to know what you're thinking about. And in particular, I want to know how you feel about the, the fact that you shouldn't say climate refugees. Drop us a note at displaced at rescue.org with any of these thoughts and more. Next week, to wrap up our series on climate change, we've got an exciting guest, Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland and the first woman to take office. A little more excitement when you say that's Mary Robinson. <laughs> a huge thank you to um, everybody who's supporting us in this at Vox Media. This place is produced by Megan Kinane, who weirdly got a gigantic tattoo of all of her family members' face on her back while she was gone this week. Our engineers, Jelani Carter, Gold Arthur is our senior producer, and Nishat Kurwa is executive producer of audio. At the IRC, Anna Fewer as our researcher. Special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sikorsky, and Ben Moskovics. Thank you for listening and see you next week.